Hi there and welcome to Vroom, your weekly motorsport fix with me, Michael Hill. Hey everybody, welcome to a very special episode of the Vroom podcast, the 40th show in the series. A big, big thank you to all 17,000 of you that have subscribed and uh, have listened over the last uh, 18 months or so. We've got a great year ahead of us and uh, we're going to start this week's show with uh, something that we haven't done over the last few episodes and that's bringing you a bit of an update in what's been going on around the world. Uh, The biggest news that we've had from the BSB is that the PR Racing BMW squad announced uh, on Wednesday Uh, the 2nd of February, that they're going to run three riders this year, Dan Linfoot, Dan Jones and Fraser Rogers, who was uh, superb in Stock 1000 last year with Aprilia. Uh, They will form a three-rider team in the British Superbike Championship. Moto America, well, we've seen some big news there. Uh, The former British champion and the Daytona 200 winner, Brandon Pash, will ride for Altus Motorsport Suzuki, and uh, he will be replacing Jake Lewis, who has not announced his plans as yet. Other big news is that Kayla Yakov, uh, who was uh, in the European Blue Crew Yamaha Championship last year, she got on the podium uh, at the end of the season. She will also ride for the Altus Motorsport team. And uh, big news in terms of riders from that series. Uh, Fenton Seabright uh, will move into the Supersport 300 World Championship with the Vinales Racing Team. He won of two British riders that will be on the grid in the Supersport 300 World Championship. Indy Offer, uh, a top six finisher in the past in the British uh, Supersport 300 Championship. He will move from uh, a Kawasaki onto a Yamaha and he will race uh, for the BR Corsa team alongside Mirko Genai, who was uh, a real, real revelation towards the end of the season. Other riders from that championship that also move up into the World Championship, uh, Ika Garcia Abea, uh, who was the champion, he moves up uh, into uh, the World Supersport 300 Championship alongside the former world champion Mark Garcia. No relation, but they will race for the Yamaha MS racing team. Yanis Peristeras, the Greek rider who uh, came so close to getting on the podium on more than one occasion last year, he also moves up into the World uh, Championship, which is really good. Umberto Maia also, uh, the Brazilian rider uh, who was uh, a revelation and a great result that he had at Donington Park in the rain. The Brazilian uh, joins Ton Kawakami uh, in the Team Brazil by MS Racing squad as well. Uh, Other names to look out for in the uh, 2020 Championship in Moto America is uh, a young Belgian rider, Levy Beatty. He will move along uh, from the Blue Crew Challenge. He will race in Moto America next year, or this year, should I say, uh, with the Bartcon Racing Team. Uh, And again, you may be familiar uh, with the Bartcon Racing Team, run by Colin Barton. The Irishman, uh, he's run uh, Dominic Doyle very successfully over the last couple of years. Twice runner-up in that championship in the Junior Cup and uh, a top six finisher in Supersport. So Levy Beatty will move across uh, into the Moto America Championship. Sticking with Moto America, it's now been announced that uh, obviously, as we know, Josh Herring will race a V-twin Panigale in the Supersport Championship. Uh, we still haven't had it officially confirmed that Danilo Petrucci will race in Superbike, but we do believe that will happen. And there was also a podcast 
uh, issued uh, earlier this week where Chris Ulrich, uh, the owner of Team Hammer, uh, the Suzuki boss in the United States, they've already announced that Sam Lockoff and Richie Escalante will race the GSXR 750 in the all-new Next Generation Supersport Series. Uh, they also announced that they will run a two-rider team in Superbike, still with Suzuki, one being a former Moto American champion. Uh, and again, there's lots of speculation as to who that would be. And uh, also they've announced that the second rider in that team will be a rookie. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, the rookie that they're talking about is somebody possibly uh, from the UK or possibly somebody from Europe. That's just my hunch. That's just my feeling. Nothing official, uh, but that could be the case. Uh, very quickly then, um, in terms of MotoGP, all of the teams have been signed. However, there was breaking news in Jerez last week. I was there recording with the uh, HRC riders Xavi Vierge and Ika Lacuona for their official Honda team launch. And uh, the big breaking news is that the former Supersport 300 world champion Anna Carrasco will not compete in the World Supersport 300 championship. She will leave the World Superbike paddock after five years and she will return to the paddock of MotoGP where she will ride alongside uh, David Munoz in the BOE Motorsport team in the Moto3 World Championship. So we wish her all the very best. Personally, I will uh, miss Anna in the paddock. We had a lot of fun on the paddock show and uh, I'm sure she'll be make a great addition to the Moto3 World Championship. Switching then very quickly to the um, Superbike, Supersport and Supersport 300 World Championships, provisional entry lists have now been released. 30 riders will take part in the uh, Supersport 300 World Championship and there's a lot of names on this list. It's going to be a great championship. The favourite you could argue on paper will be the number 46 of Samuel de Sora, the Frenchman who remains with the leader team Flembo on a Kawasaki. He was fourth in the World Championship last year. He got his first victory towards the end of the season. Uh, and on paper, looking at last year's results, he will be one to watch. As will uh, Inigo Iglesias, who stays with the SMW racing team. He had a couple of podiums towards the end of the season. Very quick in qualifying the young Spaniard. Uh, he will run at number 58. But there's a whole host of other names that have been on the podium. Uh, the Ton Kawakami, as I mentioned earlier, Yuta Akaya, Victor Stamen, who was uh, the winner quite convincingly in the Czech Republic for KTM last year. He moves across to the championship winning team, MTM Kawasaki. Ruben Bijman, who was on a Yamaha, he moves to Kawasaki as well. Dirk Geiger, who uh, came in at the end of the year to replace uh, one of the injured riders, uh, now is a full-time rider with the Sport team, uh, the team that Tom Booth Amos raced with last year. Troy Alberto, the youngster that raced previously uh, in the uh, Asia Talent Cup, also a top 10 runner in the Asia Road Racing Championships. From the Philippines, his brother TJ Alberto, a point scorer in the Superstock 1000 Championship a few years ago, uh, he will be a full-time rider in the championship. The first ever Filipino to race in the World Supersport 300 Championship. Other names just very quickly before we move on to Supersport to look out for, as I said, Bruno Yurachi, Hugo de Cancelis. Lennox Lehman will be the only KTM rider permanently on the grid. Kevin Sabatucci, a former winner. And if we go right the way down the list uh, to Team 109, Australian Harry Curie and Daniel Magada, they team up in a, a, in a two-rider team. The first time that Team 109 have had a two-rider team and they could be podium contenders. 
Supersport World Championship, 30 riders also confirmed in that championship. Dominique Egerter, the world champion, remains with Tenkarte Racing Yamaha uh, on a uh, number 77. He will run. He's not going to run the number one. Uh, Jean Onshu, he was very quick last week in testing on the ZX6R from Turkey. For me, one to watch. And a whole host of other names now joining the championship. Lorenzo Baldassari moves into the Evan Brothers World Supersport team. And we've seen what they've done in the last couple of years. The world champion, of course, uh, in the past with Randy Krummenacker. And they came so close to winning the championship uh, last year uh, with... Um, uh, with, uh, name escapes me, Stephen Odendahl, uh, after winning the championship uh, with Andrea Locatelli. Jules Cluzel is back, uh, the, 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 the rider that is so close to the championship on many, many occasions, uh, three, three or four times now runner-up in the world championship. He stays with um, the GMT 94 team. He'll be joined by the youngest ever winner in world supersport, Andy Vadoya. Maximilian Koffler, he moves across from the Moto3 world championship. He'll ride a Ducati for the CM Racing team. Rafael De Rosa, the winner in Indonesia last year, uh, he stays with the Oralac Racing team, but they also move to Ducati. Nikki Tuli and Bahatin Safoglu will form the uh, MV Augusta Rapato Corsa squad, two uh, F3800 double R's on the grid. Kyle Smith is back. He joins Marcel Brenner at VFT Racing. Unai Radre, the Spanish champion, teams up with Andre Vostatek from the Czech Republic uh, in the Yamaha MS Racing team. Jeffrey Boyce, the former World Supersport 300 champion, he will run for the MotoZoo Racing uh, by Puchetti Kawasaki team. He was testing in Jerez last week, also looking pretty good. He'll run alongside Australian Benjamin Curry, who finished in the top three for the last couple of years in the British Supersport Championship. Back on the grid is Federico Caracasulo, and back on the grid are Altea Racing, Genesio Bevilacqua's team. They won the World Championship uh, in World Superbike with Carlos Checa about a decade ago now. Well, it's a long time ago, but uh, they are back on the grid with Ducati. Nicola Bouliger, he moves across from Moto2, uh, forming part of the official Aruba IT Ducati team. Oli Bayliss, the son of the triple world champion Troy Bayliss, will ride for the Barney Spark racing team. Uh, Davide Giuliano, another name that many listeners will be familiar with, former factory rider in the Ducati World Championship team, has now formed his own team, the D34G Racing Team. Of course, Davide Giuliano used to run at number 34. And he will run uh, a, pair of, uh, a pair of siblings, Filippo and Federico Fellini, will both race the Ducati. Adrian Huertas, the world champion from Supersport 300 last year, stays with MTM Kawasaki but moves up uh, into Supersport. Tom Booth Amos, the runner-up in the championship, uh, also moves up into World Supersport this year. He will ride for the Pradina Racing World Supersport team. And the uh, Pradina team, if you aren't aware, they are the team that guided uh, Chris Walker to his one and only uh, World Superbike victory. He was the team manager back in the day. Uh, so a very, very uh, reputable team. And then finally, the big news uh, from the Dynavolt Triumph team uh, that last year were running Kyle Smith and uh, Brandon Pash in the British Supersport Championship. Uh, well, they've gone completely left field. They've gone for completely different riders, a whole new look uh, for the Triumph Speed Triple RS. And they will run uh, Hannes Sumer, who, again, a former podium finisher from Estonia. He could be one to watch. But the name to watch out for for me in the championship will be Stefano Manzi, the uh, Sky VR46 Academy rider, raced in Moto2 uh, for the last couple of seasons. He will be alongside Hannes Sumer uh, on the all-new 
765 Triumph, uh, which will be one to watch. Last but not least, uh, put my teeth in. Last but not least, before we move into our uh, two guests this week, Corey Texter and uh, uh, Chuck Axland, 24 permanent riders will be on the grid in World Superbike, and what a stellar grid it is. Toprak Razgatlioglu will be back to defend his World Championship title uh, that he took from Jonathan Ray. He will run the number one. It is the first time in the history of World Superbike. In 33 years, Yamaha will have a number one on their bike in the shape of Toprak Razgatlioglu. He stays at the Pata Yamaha with Bricks uh, team with Andrea Locatelli. Aruba IT Ducati, well, it's uh, deja vu there because Alvaro Bautista, who won 11 races on the bounce in his first season in World Superbike, he returns to the official Ducati team. He replaces Scott Redding and he will run alongside Michael Ruben Rinaldi. Kawasaki remain unchanged, Alex Lowe's and Jonathan Ray. The only thing that does change is that Jonathan Ray returns to running the famous number 65. All change uh, on one side of the BMW Motorrad garage in the shape of Scott Redding. He moves into the factory BMW team alongside Michael Vandermark, who remains with the squad. Completely all change at Honda. Ika Lacoona and uh, Xavi Vierke will ride the all-new Honda CBR 1000 RRR Fireblades. As I said, I was uh, recording uh, their team launch, which is coming up in the middle of February, and more information about that in the coming weeks. Uh, we can confirm that Xavi Vierke has already recorded an episode of the podcast. He'll be on uh, an episode following the uh, launch of the team. Uh, we uh, recorded that under embargo, so a big thank you to, uh, to Honda for allowing us to do that. No change at the GRT Yamaha team, Kota Nazani and Gareth Gerloff. Axel Bassani stays at Moto Corsa Ducati. Luca Mahias remains at uh, Kawasaki Pichetti Racing. Christoph Ponson remains at the GIL Motorsport Yamaha team. Uh, Hafi Shireen joins Leandro Mercado in an expanded team, so the Malaysian and the Argentinian will form the team that is still run by Midori Morowaki. Isaac Vinales, uh, well, he stays in the championship, but joins a team that is making their debut in the series, the Yamaha Moto X Racing Team. It'll be interesting to see how Isaac Vinales gets on. Loris Baz uh, returns to the series full-time. He will be teammates at Bonovo Action BMW with Eugene Laberty, who gets another stab at the crown. Uh, Oliver Koenig will become the youngest ever rider, uh, or not the youngest ever, but certainly the youngest in 2022. The 19-year-old will race for the Orillac Verdnadura uh, racing team on a Kawasaki ZX-10RR. Philip Ottle uh, moves to the Team Go 11 Ducati. And who have we missed? The only rider that we've missed so far is Loris Cresson, who will be at Pedicini Racing. Uh, and there's a question mark over whether they will run a second rider. Uh, some names being banded around there in terms of who could spearhead that team. Right, well, with the time uh, ticking on, we've uh, give you a bit of a rundown on uh, everything that is happening in the two-wheel world. Uh, we will also be speaking to Zach Herrin in the uh, future, along with, uh, in four wheels, uh, Sebastian Prio, who uh, just got himself on the podium in the Daytona 24 hours, the son of Andy Prio, the former multiple world touring car champion will be joining us in the future episodes but for now sit back relax and get ready for our first guest we're talking to Corey Texter (laughs) 
My first guest this week on the Vroom podcast is a rider that has had uh, what can only be described as a sensational three seasons in American flat track, the uh, 2019 and 2021 uh, flat track champion. And he'll tell us all about it. Corey Texter is dialing in from a track somewhere on the other side of the pond. Uh, Corey, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on. I, uh, I'm excited to kind of chat about the season and uh, what we have going on. Yeah, I'm in uh, Florida right now training and getting ready for another year. Okay, well, t- training in Florida in probably what is 70 or 80 degree temperatures uh, sounds a little bit better than me here in my apartment in uh, in London where I've got all the heating on and I'm, I'm dressed like an Eskimo. So uh, slight difference. Yeah, absolutely. I, I started coming down here like a week at a time and then it was two weeks and it was a month and now it's pretty much every off season. I spend my winter here in Florida and as a dirt bike racer, motorcycle rider, it's, uh, it's just, it's almost essential at this point. Like we probably have two dozen riders now in the flat track world that come down to Florida and train. So everybody's pretty much down here from Jared Meese to JD beach, Briar Bauman, Shana, you know, uh, Dallas Daniels, James Rispoli, everyone's kind of down here training and uh, getting ready for the year. Great stuff. No, it sounds uh, exciting. Well, like I said, I mean, in the last three years, I followed flat track a little bit. Not, I've got to say, I'm not as uh, an avid follower as I, I should be, really, given given the job that I do. But uh, um, twice champion uh, of the AFT. Um, now, I'm going to get this wrong, but you raced, you've raced twins and you've also raced um, singles as well, right? So just just explain. I was going to say for the listeners, but it's really for me because I'm, I'm not that technical. Just explain the difference between the different categories, just so that we understand what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've raced everything. I feel like at this point in my career, I've, uh, you know, I, I rode the premier class, I guess you could call it the uh, super twins or GNC twins. I did that for well over a decade where I was battling with the factory that, you know, the premier guys as a privateer and had a little bit of success. We had a couple podiums as a privateer, almost one Springfield mile the one year, which is like our, our big event that uh, takes place. So finished third there was right right in contention for the win um budget stuff it made it tough it makes it tough to kind of run a top tier team um in the twins class so i did a year of a a year of racing in the aft singles class and uh that was a tough one i i didn't have like great equipment that year i didn't feel like um i got hurt you know so like i had a really good year a couple really good years in the twins and then I went singles racing and we kind of struggled. And then uh, American flat track, the series we compete in, they added a, a third class to the series. It's the production twins class, which essentially I like the idea of it because everyone's kind of on equal equipment. You know, there's it's production based twins, which is like the Yamaha MT-07, Kawasaki Ninja, um, pretty much street bike engines that you take and you put in a flat track frame and it kind of evened the playing field a little bit. So I worked real hard. I, I put a team together with G and G racing and now I compete in the, uh, the last three seasons I've competed in the production twins class. So essentially American flat track has three classes, super twins, production twins and singles. And, uh, the super twins is kind of labeled as the premier class. Um, but you know, there's riders in production twins, and singles that you know there's factory teams in in all three classes at this point so uh every class and uh i guess every sport really i mean you look at moto america there's the super sport class and even like the twins cup is is pretty stacked now and um supercross you know you have the 250s 450s so 
every class is stacked at the top. Um, I just think the, um, the super twins is more, there's more consistent guys all the way through the lineup where I, um, the other classes are kind of top heavy a little bit with talent. No, I, I like that. And I think it's, it's really cool that you just linked that into Moto America because obviously I'm involved with that series. And uh, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast a few times, the Twins Cup that you mentioned. That's a championship that we don't have in Europe. Um, I think it's a brilliant initiative. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned there the MT-07, uh, the Yamaha, um, also a machine in a different frame, you could say, which is bolted in and, and they're also racing it on road bikes. So I, what I've been quite interested in doing sort of research and understanding a little bit more about, about flat track is a lot of the, the engineering and the, the technology side of things uh, from the flat track is now transferring into the road racing, isn't it? If you look at the R7, for example, the Yamaha R7, it's running an engine that's not too dissimilar to what you'll be used to running in, in flat track with the MT-07. Um, a lot of the development work is done in the flat track world. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of crazy. Like, we all do things differently, uh, supercross, motocross, flat track and road racing, kind of how we, we tune our engines and heavy cranks or stock cranks. You know, the, you know, if you want the throttle off the bottom, like supercross guys, they, they want it out of the corner and flat track we need that power to carry us down the straightaway so yeah it's kind of crazy i you know it's interesting to hear what the horsepower numbers are and 450 supercross versus 450 flat track and then i've talked to a few guys in moto america that runs that run the mt07 and just you know the horsepower numbers that they're getting and the way they deliver the power and it's kind of crazy actually like um you know we've we've had a lot of success in production twins and we pretty much run a kit engine that we get directly from Yamaha. Um, you know, a lot of guys, they develop their own heads. They put in aftermarket cranks. They do different aftermarket camshafts and, and things like that. Pistons and our whole package that we've won two championships on. It's the GYTR kit that you can buy from Yamaha. And it's kind of funny. I have guys, man, your bike works so good. Like I don't get it. It's like, well, you can buy the same kit from Yamaha. Like my team puts together a great, engine like they're really efficient but we run the yamaha kit that they uh, offer to uh their their riders so no i think that, that's good i mean that's something also that yamaha has tried to do in road racing looking in the world super sport championship the r7s and all of these different kits and you tend to find that some of these successful teams they're not going out and trying to develop their own thing they're sticking with what's being tried and tested and sometimes that's the way to go right i mean you don't have to go chasing your tail if it's not broken yeah no Right, right. I mean, you could go and, you know, maybe we could go out and, and try and gain another two or three horsepower, but at the expense of reliability. And our team has been really efficient with mechanical failures and things like that. Like, I think we've only had one mechanical over three years of racing where a lot of these other teams, they, you know, they, they usually have two or three a year. So, um, yeah, there's more we could do, but we're big on efficiency. Just get the bike close and let me do my job. You know, I feel... I feel like if you give me a good steed, I can get the job done. Like growing up, I never had, I was never on factory equipment. I've never had anything, anything crazy to race with. And, um, the bike I'm on now is by far the best bike I've ever ridden. So it's like, man, just get me close. Give me a reliable bike. That'll finish the whole main event. And, and, uh, we'll be in the mix. Yeah. It's, and again, just again, I know we've got a lot of listeners on, 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 on the podcast now around the world that are coming uh, from, from the road racing world. But just looking at some of the numbers, you're talking about just one failure uh, in, in, in the last few years. 
in the last three years alone, um, Corey's had 17 pole positions, 14 wins, um, not including the other podium finishes as well. So, you know, I think you, you're kind of backing up what you said there. If you give, me, give me the equipment that's going to get me to the to the checkered flag and you can get the job done. And I think your, your statistics back that up, really. So, uh, I mean, it's pretty impressive stuff, I've got to say. Yeah, thank you. No, it's it's been good. It's uh, I'm big on consistency, but in our in our series, it's um, it definitely it definitely rewards to win races. So the way the points scale is, it's it's um, 25 for the win, 20 for second, 17 for third. So you know, from first to third is an eight is eight points. So um, a lot of guys, you know, oh, it's you know, let's get on the podium every week. We'll be there at the end. And it's like, dude, if you're on the podium every week. And I go out there and I win five, six races, that gap is, that's a huge gap, you know, cause then it's, then it's, um, from fifth, I'm sorry, from fourth on back, it's one point increment. So from fourth to 10th in points, um, you know, that's twice the, um, twice the positions, but it's only six points. So yeah. it definitely rewards to, to podium, but we're, we're, I'm really win heavy. Like my first year race in the series, um, I was big on consistency and I like tried to manage the points too much and, uh, it came down to the wire where, um, you know, it shouldn't have been that way. And these last two years I've been, uh, I just take every race one, one at a time. And I just try to go out and grab wins. Um, if you go out and you try to win every race, the points will, they'll play out, you know, you, you know what I mean? So I just try to go out and one race at a time and just try and, uh, try and get wins. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and again, uh, as I said, I think it was 2019 at Road America, I was lucky enough to be taken along to a, to a flat track race. It wasn't one of the, the big championship races, but there was a, an event on uh, near near Road America. And, and from then I started watching it. And for the fans that are maybe not sure what flat track racing is, the good news, which I saw uh, announced today, uh, which again, I'll be interested in your um, take on this, Corey, is that um, AFT, the uh, sort of the organizers or the governing body of uh, flat track in the States have said that all races will be streamed live on Facebook in 2022. So that's a massive boost for, for your series. Yeah, we've had pretty good TV coverage like the last, man, I, maybe five or six years. We were we were in the X Games, which is obviously huge. Um, so we, we were in the X Games for four years. And then we were on NBC Sports, which was really cool. That was a TV package that's big here in the States. I'm not sure internationally. Like I know internationally it's been hard to kind of stream some of these races. But now that they're bringing the TV coverage to Fox Sports and they're bringing it to Facebook, it's pretty convenient for our fans internationally to, right. to tune in and watch what we do. You know, and maybe I'm biased, but the the racing in flat track is just it's so tight, it's so fast, and um, there's so many different winners. Like uh, you know, it's it's really diverse with our riders, and it's just a lot of fun to watch. And with the popularity of Obviously, Marquez is—he's big in the flat track, and Rossi's got Rossi's Ranch, and there's um a lot of road race and super—you know, Chad Reed, Ryan Villapoto. There's a lot of people that are taking interest in the sport. So when they tune in and they watch the high-level athletes, what we do every weekend, it's it's pretty cool. Like it's it's a good time to be a flat tracker, and I'm just trying to take in every moment and enjoy it as long as I can because I'm I'm 34, so I you know I'm one of the older guys in the class. And, which is crazy that freaking happened so fast <laughs> but uh here we are and yeah i'm just trying to enjoy every moment that we have with it yeah and it's funny that you mentioned the super prestigio i was lucky enough to go to barcelona a few years ago long before the pandemic and uh kind of i was doing some tv work there I didn't actually get to see all the racing we were filming prior to the event but uh 
that is a, is a great spectacle. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that I noticed when I first went to the flat track, even though it wasn't a massive event, it was a lot faster than I expected it to be. You know, like my perception was it's going to be a bit like Speedway in the UK. They're going to go around four, four laps or whatever. It's going to be over in the blink of an eye, but it's just going to be a bit of a procession. And it wasn't that. And I was really pleasantly surprised. And then, as you said, there are so many international motorcycle races that are in road racing and other disciplines where they're also training in flat track. So I think it's definitely given it a bit of a hype. And, and I noticed on, on your um, social media as well, uh, th there's been an interview with, with Casey Stoner, I think, quite recently. And you were saying, you know, um, clearly you've, you've followed road racing uh, in your career that uh, you'd be interested to see who would win between a, a prime prime Casey Stoner and a prime Marquez. And, and I got thinking about this today and I thought, I'm not sure you could call it. I think it would be a really bloody good race to watch. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big, I'm just a big fan of, of all, every, all the athletes that, that race different disciplines. Like I, I like MotoGP. I'm a big Supercross fan. I, I follow Woods Racing, GNCC. I'm a huge Moto America fan. I have, I have friends that compete at all levels. Right. So, um, so I follow all the, all the different disciplines and yeah, as a fan, like I'm just a fan. Like I, I love, and I'm even a fan of the guys I race with, which is actually, it's kind of a, sometimes it makes it tough. Like I'm the production twins class last year, we had a young kid come up, uh, Dal Dalton Gauthier. He was uh, riding uh, for the Harley Vance and Hines team. And I grew up watching Dalton. He's a 450 singles champion. And he's like one of the sickest dudes I've ever seen on a motorcycle as far as style goes and talent. And, um, you know, I, I had to go out there every week and try to beat the kid. And it's like, it's like, I get behind him. I'm like, dude, this kid's sick. And I'm trying to, trying to outwork him, outbeat him. But at the same time, I'm like a big fan of a lot of the guys I race with. And I just sort of forget sometimes it's like, dude, I, these guys are awesome. It's, but, um, but like, I'm, I'm right there with them. It's kind of a humbling thing to, uh, to race with these guys and be able to compete with them. Yeah. And I, I always like that when riders can, you know, they can be sharing a beer or just chilling out over a barbecue, put the helmet on and then the, the knives are out, you know, the gloves are off and it's, it's every man for himself. But I think that's, it's, it's really nice to, to hear you say that. I've also been doing a little bit of digging as well because um, I was trying to rack my brains. I think, did you ever, did you ever road race? Um, and I was lucky enough to find some stuff on, on the internet. So again, for any listeners that want to try and follow your story and, and, and go back sort of 10, 15 years, I found a really great snippet on YouTube, um, which was um, the uh, road to Daytona, the, the Texter siblings. It's 2013. So go onto YouTube and just type in uh, uh, Texter siblings road to Daytona. Um, and it's a 10 minute video um but it, it's brilliant um i don't know if you remember filming that i mean clearly you you, you obviously done a lot in the last 10 years but this is it's such a great little video with you and and, and i'm assuming it's your sister uh, i could get this wrong um i'm assuming it's your sister that's in the video and um there's just one part of it where you you, you rock up into the uh, the living room it looks like or the kitchen area uh, in wherever it was that you were you were staying and you have this big long list and you, you've drawn a diagram about where you're going to park the bikes and where the tire warmers are going to go and like <laughs> your sister's response is just brilliant so I'm not going to spoil it if anybody wants to watch it but um, you've got a you've had a great relationship clearly with with your sister she's been a massive part of the the, the sport and, and everything that you you're doing um, do, do you remember filming that I know you didn't you weren't even aware I was going to ask you that but I, I did watch that. Yeah. Yeah. This afternoon. I mean, no, do you remember filming that? Because that was bloody brilliant. You could have made a little yeah. mini series of that, you know, it was great. Yeah, that was actually that went over really well. Like, um in Flat Track, we don't have a lot of YouTube channels. Like in Motocross, it's pretty big, like the whole blogging and video blogging and even in road racing, like 
it's it's kind of more popular than it is in flat track and i'm actually trying to revamp our our youtube channel and we're going to do a lot more youtube videos this year but um yeah that little series there um like i said i've i've raced pretty much everything at this point and um at that point in time in my career we didn't have a lot of money or opportunities um so the money just wasn't there for me to race flat track and i got linked up with a a team from new jersey mob racing and I actually raced the um, the 1200 Harley series they had in uh, AMA. I raced that oh, wow. in 2013. Yeah, and I did two rounds at Daytona, and then I did Road America actually, um, which is kind of crazy, man. Like I did, I did a test day at Jennings in Florida, and then I lined up and raced Daytona. Like I've never rode any pavement. I never did any road racing at like a club level or anything. Um, I did one track day. And then I raced my first pro event like a month later in Daytona. Um, and we did all right. Like, I think I finished like 14th out of, out of 30 guys. Um, I actually gridded up in between two guys that my dad raced with David Eastock and Steve Crevier. So, um, to be on the grid with, with two guys that my dad raced with in my first ever road race was, uh, was just pretty special. But yeah, I mean, like you said, I have a really good relationship with Shana, um, She's probably the more well-known texter. So even with uh, two championships, I still get, oh, you're Shana's brother. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, I guess I guess that's right. So um, we have a really good relationship. My dad passed away when I was 22 years old, and Shana was only 18, 19 years old when my dad passed away. So we kind of leaned on each other throughout our careers. And without having her there or you know her having me, we might have never even kept racing. Like It was really close to a point where we almost stopped racing, um, before, before any of these big goals were accomplished. So yeah, it's good to have that relationship. Shane is obviously super accomplished. She's a fact. She was a factory KTM racer for a few years and now she just signed with factory Indian motorcycle. I'm super yeah, well, stoked yeah. for her. And yeah, I was going to say, it's not yeah, just, as I say, it's not, it's not just her being on the video, putting you in your place and, and, and sort of click clearly wearing the trousers in, in that segment on the video, but she's also, as you just rightly <laughs> said, you know, um, a, a very accomplished, uh, rider in her own right. Yeah. I mean, like I said, maybe I'm biased, but like she races against all, all the guys and she's the winningest singles rider in the history of the sport. So She's, um, I still think she's the fastest female in terms of like, there's like some girls that race, like there's women's classes and a lot of disciplines like motocross and hair scrambles and, and things like that. And there's been some, some pretty good women road racers, like Elena Myers has had some really good yeah. results and Melissa Paris. And, um, I forget her name and, uh, oh, man, uh, we're going to shoot me. Carrasco. Yeah. Um, but Shayna's like long longevity, like how how long she's been winning races on different brands, and um, it's pretty it's, it's pretty crazy actually. Um, and manhandling three hundred and thirty pound twins on some of these rough dirt tracks, it's um, yeah, it's pretty cool what she's been able to do. And I'm her biggest fan and supporter. And yeah, together, kind of going through this journey, it's been really cool. And it's uh, I'm, yeah, super super stoked to be a part of it.
Yeah, and that was one of the questions that I was going to, again, come on to. You mentioned Anna Carrasco, and obviously I know Anna really well from her exploits in the World Supersport 300 Championship, and she obviously does flat track and trains at, um, at Rocco's Ranch and, and things in Barcelona. It's just been announced that she's going to go back to the Moto3 World Championship, um, which personally I think is is great. Um, you know, I think to have a, a female represented in in one of the, the top levels of, of road racing, I think is, is fantastic. And, and, you know, she's a, she's a world champion in her own right. Where, where do you sit when, you know, there's an argument that, you know, well, not an argument, but there's a lot of people that say, you know, girls shouldn't race, girls should be doing this, this and this, they should be in a separate championship. I personally don't agree with that. I personally think if someone wants to go racing, whatever, you know, whatever gender they are, it shouldn't really matter. Go and race a motorbike, you know, as far as I'm seeing it. Um, where, where do you sit on the on the fence with that? I don't want to turn this into a political, you know, interview, but just, no, yeah. just obviously yeah. knowing knowing you and obviously having... A sister who is a bloody fast rider, you know, where, where do you where do you personally see that? I mean, are you on the, the side of the fence where it should be fully mixed or, or or where do you sit with it? Yeah, I mean, I I'm obviously a, a fan of it being mixed and and to be fair, it is a lot harder for women to be successful racing against men or competing in sports against men. Like it's just like a genetic thing, right? So um for a, a female to be successful in a male dominated sport, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, what I've always admired about Shayna and some of these other women racers too, like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know many of them that well. I obviously know Shayna and she never really looked at it as like, Oh, I want to be the fastest girl. Like she went to the track and she didn't care who she was racing with. She went there to win. Um, she never looked at it as I'm a girl trying to be successful against the male, the males. And we never even really marketed it that way. Um, whether or not we're wrong, right, or indifferent, we never really marketed it like that whole, that whole deal. Like we were there to win races against everybody. So, um, there's some women racers that I personally feel they go about it the wrong way. Like they want to, they want to take pictures in their sports bras, washing their bikes, but then they don't, they go out on the track and they just, they don't put up results. They're just all about like the clout and the, um, the exposure, and the female racers that go out there and they're successful and, and they don't like focus on the stuff that's not important. I think that's amazing. And, um, I think, you know, Shana's paved the way for a lot of, a lot of women racers in that, in that aspect. So no, that's really cool. Anytime we can get a competitive female in, in a championship like Moto3 or uh, anything like that, American flat track, it's, it's pretty special. It wasn't long ago. We had five or six females racing in our pro series and, and now we're back to just Shana. So hopefully, there's some young uh, women racers coming up that have what it takes and um, can go out there and be competitive. It's not easy. So it's, um, yeah. it's a, it's a lofty goal. And uh, if I have a daughter, I want her to, I, I want her to play uh, soccer or something or football, whatever you call it. But uh, yeah, yeah. obviously yeah. if she wants to be a racer, then uh, we'll take her racing. So. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. You know, um, I think there's a, there's a time and place for Instagram snaps, right? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> now, obviously, you're talking about having having a, a little daughter, but uh, you are blessed to have a little son. And again, uh, for those uh, fans that are going to obviously start following you now that have maybe never followed you or, or followed uh, Flat Track before, um, there's a lot of pictures, and it's clear from your 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 uh, your social media posts that you take a lot of pride uh, of taking a little cruise up onto uh, onto the podium. And I've seen him, uh, you know, posing with you when you're doing various interviews. So. What's it like, obviously, knowing that you grew up and your dad was a racer? So it's kind of like next generation now, isn't it, with, with you, uh, with uh, with Cruz? Has he got any aspirations to follow in his dad's footsteps and and uh, and get on two wheels, or is is he not really not really into it? He just just like seeing dad on TV. 
No, actually, he's um he's been on a on a Stasic since he was two years old, and we've had him on a PW. Oh, I love that when he was three. So yeah, he's he's got a social channel. His his TikTok, he has over two hundred thousand followers on TikTok. Uh, no way, texter. So Jeez. yeah, he's he's pretty sick, man. Yeah, he's pretty well known as. Uh, it's kind of funny. I go to the pro the pro races, and I have people messaging me on race day. Um, they're fans of Cruz and they want to come over and get a picture with Cruz. Like, oh, like I'm trying great. to get ready to go out and race, and I have people, fans, messaging me that they want to come get a picture with my four-year-old. I'm like, uh, it's kind of weird, but yeah, just come over during open paddock. So no, it's um, it's been cool. Like we've done a few races with him, and he really loves it. And as long as he likes it and he wants to put an effort in, then whatever he wants to do, you know, I'm I just want him to um. Put you know, put his time and focus into something that he loves to do, whether or not it's racing motorcycles or if he wants to be a synchronized swimmer. You know, I, whatever it is he wants to do, we're gonna fully support. But his um his talent on two wheels right now is is pretty pretty cool to see. And as long as he's smiling and enjoying the process, we'll keep doing it and and go from there. Like I, I like I said, I kind of wanted to. I know motorcycles is a, it's a tough job sometimes with the injuries and trying to find sponsors and I wanted to get him in the like another sport but I realized that like I suck at golf I'm not good at baseball so I don't really know what else I can teach him like motorcycles is the only thing that I feel like I'm decent at so it's just sort of you know and then we have Shayna and then we have Shayna's husband Briar who's a two-time super twins champ and you know he's around all these fast guys all the time you know JD Beach this winter and Dallas Daniels and he's just around like all these fast guys all the time so it kind of just well I was like damn what did you expect like he's obviously it's it's inevitable right yeah for sure it's inevitable (laughs) he's gonna follow in his dad's footsteps so I can't believe that he's four years old and he's got 200,000 followers on TikTok that is incredible just just what 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 is his social media because I'm gonna have to go and follow him now because this is really that's great oh yeah Absolutely. His, uh, it's just cruise texter, like cruise control in a vehicle. So cruise and then texter. And he's, That's um, he's brilliant. had a bunch of videos. Um, one of his videos has like 26 million views. It's, um, we have a concrete basement in our house, uh, in Pennsylvania and he's really good at like sliding his bike around like a flat tracker. Um, he's been kind of sliding it and doing donuts since he's been like two years old. So, a lot of people really, they found our, his page kind of from those videos going viral of him on his uh, little electric bike. So, um, but now we're transitioning to the PW 50 and I just, we got him a Cobra 50 that he's going to be racing here in a few months. And it's crazy. Like I'm going to have to, like, I'm planning my off season around his races. Like it's, it's starting to get pretty serious and yeah, it's going to get tougher and tougher for me to race and, and take him to the races too. But that's we'll great. make it work. My wife, she's she's really supportive, and Shana helps me out quite a bit. And um, yeah, so it's been it's a really cool family journey, and uh, we're excited for it. No, I love that. The next generation of texters is is coming through. I think that's great. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, final <laughs> final two questions, Corey. Because I know we've been talking for almost half an hour, and I will get shouted at again, like I do every single episode, by the producer for just waffling <laughs> on about absolutely nothing. But I think this has been such a cool cool chat. Um, what's the what's the twenty twenty two plan for for you? Yeah, I'm going to um, defend the championship and production twins. Like we've won two titles. We've had a runner up finish in 2020. And, you know, looking at the results last year, we, we won the championship by 85 points. It was a really good year. 
And even with the success we had last year, looking at the results, I feel like we can do better. Um, if I didn't feel like I could improve, I wouldn't keep doing this. So we're going to go at it again. There's a lot of young, hungry kids in that class that that want to want to take what we have and just just getting ready to defend that championship. And like I said, I'm 34. I don't know much after that, but I'm fully committed to this year. I'm down here in Florida. I feel as good as I've ever felt and I'm ready to get after it. Like it's it's something I really enjoy the process of everything I'm doing right now. And the challenge of another year, a clean slate. It's uh, it's a, I love that aspect and I live for this shit and I'm just excited for it. No, that's great. And I guess my, my final question is obviously I'm involved with, with Moto America. It's uh, you know, something I've, I've been doing now for a few years. You mentioned that you, you know, obviously you follow the series. Do you reckon there'll be a chance at any point through the season to, uh, to actually get you to a, to a race? We can maybe get you sorted out with a, a twos up with Chris Ulrich on the, uh, the Suzuki or something and uh, give you a bit of an experience, bring Cruz along as well, get him on one of the Ovales and make a nice <laughs> weekend of it. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool what uh, Ulrich is doing that two up thing, but I ain't getting on the back of anybody else. So I uh, I talked to Chuck and uh, and Wayne Rainey quite a bit, actually. Like uh, I've had Wayne on my podcast and he's, He's turned into a friend and me and Chuck, we probably talk once a week. So I'd love to come out. We kind of threw around the idea of maybe, maybe doing a twins cup race, um, on a Yamaha on the oh, future. No, that, would be so, cool. that would be cool. <laughs> so we'll see. I, I don't know. I love, I love the sport. I watch every race. I, I'm good friends with Brandon Pash and Ben Glotty. And, you yeah. know, I talk to just a lot of the road race guys and Bobby Fong and just, uh, big fans of all the guys over there. And, yeah, I'd love to get to one, so I'll keep you posted. Uh, I'm sure Chuck will be on me. Uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll get, get on the grid even, but uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, no, we've got to make that happen. I did actually do uh, do the twos up with Ulrich as part of the Moto America Live Plus, and then ended up spending the whole of Sunday just going commando. Not that anybody knew because I needed to change my underwear, mate, after the second quarter. I was like, "Holy smokes, <laughs> this guy!" I mean, I've ridden I've ridden bikes on the track, so I'm not scared. But it's kind of like you say, you know, when when you're putting your faith in somebody else, and he says we're going to take it steady, and then he, he sets off from the from the start line, and he's doing wheelies in first, second, and third gear, and then just chucks it on its side, and my knees on the floor, and I'm pilling, and I'm thinking, "Holy shit!" we ain't going to make the corner but it was it was so much fun i don't actually think we could use any of the footage because i was just literally everything was beeped out because it was like shit like we, we crossed he said he would do one one lap and then he would stop and then as we came sort of towards the end of the lap he said do you want to go for for a fast like fly through the start and finish and i was like yeah let's go and um i've got the video we passed the start and finish twos up at road america at 168 miles an hour like he wasn't hanging around. Yeah. I was like, geez, <laughs> like this is fast. This is fast. But it was great. It, for it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy what they do. Maybe one day if I maybe, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll get talked into it. But um, no, I'd love to be there. Like I said, I'm a big fan of all forms of racing, big fan of what you're doing with your podcast. Uh, the sport needs more of this stuff. And yeah, definitely um, anybody listening, if, if they can just give us a follow on YouTube, Corey Texter Racing. We're going to do a bunch of videos this year of my my racing and then uh cruise as well and and just document the year and yeah i don't know how much longer i'll be racing so it'll be really cool to follow and uh, thanks for having me on the show
No, and thanks again. Thanks for the kind words. I appreciate that. And, and thanks for taking a little bit longer than, than I said. I said we'd only need 20 minutes and I've kept you for nearly 40. So uh, I do appreciate you uh, taking the time out because I know uh, you, you're out there uh, testing and riding some, some, some motocross today. So uh, again, as Corey said, you can follow him on his social media. You can also follow him uh, on Instagram and Twitter as well. His Twitter is Corey Texter. And uh, I'm sure uh, he will be, uh, well, he will be very welcome at Moto America this year. And, uh, and who knows, maybe if I can tie in staying out in the States a little bit longer, if I don't have any commitments in Europe, I'll actually get to one of your races and see a, see a pro flat track race because that's, that's on my bucket list. So, so maybe we can sort that out at some point. But uh, Corey, thanks again, buddy. Let me know. Um, Let me enjoy, know. The rest of your, uh, enjoy the rest of your day testing and um, we'll see you soon. All right, Michael. Good chatting. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Our final guest this week on the Vroom podcast uh, is Chuck Axland, uh, a name that you may be familiar with if you follow the Moto America Championship. And I'm sure by the end of this next 20, 25 minutes, you'll be really familiar with who he is. Chuck, thank you for dialing in. I know you're over there in sunny California. It's minus five here in London. Uh, we can swap if you want and, uh, and re-record this next week. No, I spent, uh, I think I've done my run, uh, UK winters. You know, I was over there for 12 years uh, running Kenny's MotoGP team. And I think regardless of whether the team would have continued or not, I would have started coming home in the wintertime anyways. Yeah, those dark cold days and, you know, going to work in the dark, coming home in the dark, that wasn't fun. Yeah, no, for sure. I feel I feel your pain. Um, you mentioned though, you alluded to uh, to obviously being part of the uh, the Marlboro Roberts uh, Kenny Roberts team. Uh, there's so much that we could talk about, and obviously, I know we'd lined you up to be on the podcast, and uh, I know we were joking just uh, before we we started this live, saying you know you're becoming a bit of a regular now because I did hear you on the uh, the Paul Carruthers and Sean Bice podcast. <laughs> so many other things have come out of the woodwork, Chuck, that I didn't even know about you. Um, so where do we start today? I want to talk to you about your, your racing career. I want to talk to you about the, the, the good old days with, with, with Kenny and obviously with Wayne. We've got to talk about Moto America. Um, got to talk to you also about your relationship with, with Jonathan Ray because you're his personal manager as well. So uh, I think I'm sure that a lot of the listeners will, would love to know how that came about and, and obviously uh, what you see for, for Jonathan in the future. I guess the best place to start would be um, at the beginning. How did you get into motorcycling? You know, forget whether it was riding. I mean, was it something that you were already interested in as, as a small child or? No. So so my father, um, basically my grandfather had a ranch in Manteca, California. <clears throat> he had a truck company and uh, he he was involved in a local motorcycle club. Uh, my father raced, you know, local scrambles, did some professional racing as well. <clears throat> um and so I just, you know, you grow up in it, right? I started on a little three horsepower Briggs and Stratton lawnmower engine mini bike racing around a tree. And um, I think I went through two of those. And and uh, then my first real bike was a little Yamaha Mini Enduro 60. And uh, I started racing that when I was eight years old. And and actually, the one that my dad bought me, the the being on the ranch, we had a, we had a flat track and motocross track and, you know, we lived there so I could just get up in the morning and start up and go ride. And I would do that all day long and basically destroy bikes. Even at a young age, I'd just wear them out. So, so when it was time for me to go try and race, I had this, um, uh, my bike was pretty clapped out. So Kenny actually loaned me his mini enduro 60 
to go do my first racing on. So, which I actually still have. It's in my garage. You know, my, uh, oh, wow. my dad, my dad downsized uh, his house, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. And he told me to come over there and help him, you know, move some stuff. And there was uh he had three or four different bikes sitting in the corner. And one of them was this little Yamaha 60. And he goes, do you want that? And I'm like, yeah, I'll take that. And he goes, well, it's yours. And I'm like, yeah, you just gave it to me. Right. And he goes, no, that's yours when you're eight years old. That was the bike that you started on. So, oh, wow. so you didn't, you didn't actually remember it. You didn't realize it was your old bike. Well, I didn't know. I, you know, I mean, I'm getting closer to 60 now. So, I mean, do you know where your first bike was? Or a lot of people don't know where they are, but somehow, somehow this stayed around, you know, in, in Northern California and some friends of ours knew where it was. And, and my dad ended up with it, ended up with wow. it. So uh, it's pretty cool. You know, I need yeah, to that is a cool it story. It's pretty, it's pretty beat up, but it's pretty neat to have your first kind of proper mini bike. Yeah. Does it, does it still run then? Does it still, does it still operate? I've never tried. It looks like it probably could, but I haven't tried. I just, I just put it in the side. It's got some, you know, I mean, like I said, it's kind of beat up. It's got old plastic fenders and seats torn, that kind of stuff. So um, one of these days when I get some time, I'll start tearing it apart and clean it up and, and get it running. Yeah. And I'd love to see that. That'd be, and especially now in the yeah. day and age that we've got of Instagram and stuff. I mean, you, you've got to video that you've got to, you know, <laughs> when you five it up. I don't know if you've, um, if you follow um, Jamie Whittam, obviously himself, a former racer, he, he tinkers around with sort of the old TY80 trials bikes and sort of the RD350 LCs. And he posts a load of videos of the old two stroke stuff that he kind of goes in the garage and sort of disappears for a couple of months. And then yeah, randomly I do, this I do tweet. follow him. Yeah, man, it's pretty cool when he starts them up, yeah. you know, when he starts up those old two strokes. But uh, yeah, I like that. It's good. Yeah, this little, this little, this little uh, Yamaha 60, it's, uh, I mean, another thing connected to racing is on this little flat track that my grandfather had, like I said, I would ride every day. And um, one day I noticed they were building some, a trailer park, um, probably about a half mile down. I could see where they had this big mound of dirt. And there was another, I could see another kid riding around on a similar bike. And I rode over there and, and got the guy and it turned out to be Fred Merkel. No so, way. You know, yeah. So me and Fred have been, been friends since we were about the same time. And, you know, on the weekends, his father would bring him over and, and ride on our track. Wow, that's cool. I haven't seen Fred. I think the last time I saw Fred Merkel was at the Eichmer show in, in Milan. And yeah, that's got to be, what, four or five years ago. And he came onto the, the paddock show there and, and talked about his early days. And and again, for, and we've got a lot of car listeners on the podcast uh, now over the last couple of months. Fred Merkel was the first ever uh, world superbike champion um, back in 1988 uh, from the US. He was the first ever winner uh, and went on to win it two years in a row. So uh, that's uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. You, you name drop it, Chuck. I'm, I'm sure by the, end, by the end of this podcast. <laughs> well, it's just funny how all these things ended up connected, you know? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's super cool. It's super cool. Yeah. Obviously, you started out like that. You then obviously had a bit of a foray into into road racing. And um, how was that for you? Just you, you, were you sort of fast, or you just didn't enjoy it so much, or you know what, what was what was the story there? No, so I grew up, you know, really um, racing a little bit of flat track in Northern California, and then uh, moved on to motocross. Because at that time, there was more support, you know, to be gained by being a motocrosser. Uh, my dad was also involved in development of motocross, um, you know, motors and stuff like that with the Yamaha factory and, and so forth. So we were able to get some equipment and I did that. And then, in um, uh, got to be pretty, pretty fast actually in Northern California circle. I never went and did nationals or anything like that, but I was kind of on the cusp of being able to. 
And then in 1983, Kenny's last year that he was going Grand Prix racing, he was going through some stuff and he needed, he wanted somebody to help train and, and ride with and so forth. And so I, I moved in with him and, you know, we would train and go riding and running and, and all that to get him ready for his, his last season of the Grand Prix. And then he asked me to go over and, you know, help him drive the motorhome and stuff. So in effect, I was like the first Uchio, right? I was the, the helmet guy and, you know, driving his motorhome and stuff like that. And when I went over there, although, you know, my uncle was a pretty good road racer here and I, I understood what it was in the States. Man, when you go watch a Grand Prix, especially in those days, it was like, wow, this is a completely different world. So so I thought I'd come back from Europe in 83 and uh, wanted to try and, and road race, you know, maybe take that turn. And at that time, again, the road racing was a little bit unsettled. You know, there wasn't a lot of people getting paid to do it. But, um, you know, I gave myself three years and I rode a 250, um, 84 and 85. And then we had a super bike in 86. And that was my run. You know, I decided to stop in 80 after, after the 86 season. And kind of get a real job, so to speak. But um, in the end, I ended up back in the motorcycle industry. Could never, never really get out of it. Yeah, I was going to say, you kind of, you say that you stopped racing, but you probably become more immersed and more involved in the sport in the last sort of 20, 30 years of your life, probably than, than in the beginning. I mean, you, you said at the beginning that you, you were involved with, with Kenny in the, uh, in the glory days, as a lot of people talk about the 500cc era where, you know, I mean, I think there's a, a documentary that Matt Oxley um, was involved with and, and certainly interviewed in. Uh, was it The Unridables, I think it's called, or The Untouchables? The Unridables, yeah. right? And it's this this yep. documentary. Again, for, for anyone in this listening, if you've never seen it, go on YouTube it and, and watch it. It's a phenomenal um, series. Uh, the likes of Wayne, Eddie Lawson, Kevin Schwantz, you know, all, all of the guys uh, in there. I mean... Grand Prix racing now is, is a spectacular sport, isn't it? I mean, we talk about MotoGP and the way that they ride the bikes now. But back in the in sort of the, the 90s, um, sort of late 80s into the 90s, it was still spectacular. I mean, it was very different, but it was still spectacular. I mean, I think we, we've talked in the past, haven't we? You know, I, I remember being a young kid stand, sitting on the bank at, um, at Donington watching, you know, the Pepsi Suzuki and the Lucky Strike Yamahas and, and all that kind of stuff going on and the sound and the smells it was just a different era, but it was still special. Yeah, no, it was um, probably everybody can put the argument forth that the era they grew up in or witnessed was the you know most special or whatever. But you know, MotoGP now is an incredible spectacle to watch, and the level of technology and and you know how close the competition is now from one to twenty second. You know, everybody's there, everybody's got good equipment. It wasn't always like that. It wasn't like that in, in our era, you know, era, so to speak. Um, you know, we went through a season this year with Jake Gagne winning, you know, 17 out of 20 some races. And, you know, a lot of people take that as a bit of a ho-hum. But I remember, you know, I was there when Mick Doohan won, I think, 12 out of 15 in one season. And, right. you know, I, I you kind of look at that little bit to, as an appreciation because as a rider and as a team, there are so many things that could be a hiccup and go wrong, you know, to diminish that type of a streak or that type of performance. But, you know, like Jake did this year and Mick did back in those days, it was pretty, pretty special to, to be able to witness that, you know, it's just a whole different level that they were on. And, you know, before Wayne's accident, those days with, uh, you know, Wayne, Kevin, Mick, I mean, it was, it was a battle, you know, it was, it was, uh, could have put them in a boxing ring and, 
and um, you know they would have had it out. You know they didn't like each other on the racetrack, and and it was uh, it was fun to fun part you know to, fun to be a part of that whole whole time for sure. It's interesting that you mentioned the rivalries, and that's something that we've seen. Obviously, me being more involved with Superbike, I remember the rivalries that Fogarty had with Scott Russell, and then yeah. that infamous rivalry that emerged between Frankie Killy and, and Fogarty when uh, that incident at Assen, I think it was, wasn't it? Where, where yeah. um, Frankie right. thought that he'd, he'd been knocked off, but he hadn't. And then he storms in with, in his dressing gown. <laughs> all these crazy things that go on. I mean, had we had social media in the way that we have it now, I mean, things would have been very different. I mean, like you, you talk about being in a boxing ring. I mean, the, the, back then it was all faxed press releases, wasn't it? You'd, you'd have to wait for the news to come out. Could you imagine some of those scenarios? I mean, you must have hundreds of stories over the years of, of the rivalries and things that happened. It would be interesting to see if, if social media now, back in the day, what would have happened, you know? Because that that, that Frankie Killy thing that in my head always springs to mind, that would have gone global within seconds, wouldn't it? I mean, it's just, you know... Oh, yeah, for sure. But also, you know, and I think this was pre-social media, so to speak, but it might have been when the internet had started. But remember Max Biaggi and Rossi getting in a fight, going up the stairs at Barcelona on the yes. podium. Well, yeah, at the bottom of the podium on the spot, stairs. So. Yeah, he slapped him, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's uh, a lot of things back in those days that used to, used to go on, for sure. But, yeah. Social media is uh, definitely, you know, I mean, giving us access to a lot more different things, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but it uh, certainly keeps us entertained. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned, obviously, that that winning streak of McDoohan. And, and again, you know, uh, I think it's no secret that, that everybody knows my, my the reason I'm involved in racing and, and why I love it so much is because of Wayne Rainey. You know, I'm proud to call him a friend now as well. But uh, I remember... The, the final world championship that he won uh, in 1992 and it came right down to that final race and it's just interesting for you mentioning McDoohan I mean it looked yeah. as though McDoohan was going to be the champion I mean, he was winning everything and then he broke his leg and you know you talk about winning streaks you know and what Gagne did this year was phenomenal and should not be yeah. underestimated in any way shape or form you know but yeah. as a as a team manager at that point because obviously you were involved in the sport in a very different way how did you handle that? I mean, I know obviously it's been documented and there's many interviews with Wayne and other champions, but as a team manager, for, as, a, as a figurehead of a team, of someone that's trying to hold all these pieces together, knowing that the champion is the person with the most points, it's not necessarily the guy that wins the most races. So you've got to keep that belief going. You've got to keep Wayne, I guess, kind of keep that belief going and then realize that, you know, in the next 20 minutes, we could pull something off here that is phenomenal. But there's also, again, that flip side where people will say, ah, but you only won the championship because Wayne broke it, uh, because um, Mick went, broke his leg. But, you know, I don't see it like that because I see it as the whole sport is what it is. But, you know, how how did you deal with with that, especially in 92? No, uh, don't, you know, don't don't remember. We had Kenny Roberts that was the, you know, the real leader of the team. So, you know, Kenny was a great visionary, obviously world champion in his own right. Um, very good at assessing situations and, I think my job was to help Kenny, you know, just make sure all the puzzles and all the pieces of the puzzle were there, you know, um, racing on that level is really about consistency, trying to, you know, basically get better every weekend, um, um, structure and, 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 you know, not letting things slip through the cracks, you know, so you can give your rider the best opportunity. I mean, Wayne, all writers that I work with work hard, but I don't think any of them work harder than Wayne, <clears throat> Wayne Rainey, you know, I mean, I, I remember back in those days, we would uh, stay in Spain, you know, little town sieges, and I was a lot fitter back in those days. So sometimes I'd go run with them and, you know, we'd, we'd go run in the town and run up the mountain. And when it was time to, when I thought we were going to stop, he's, 
he would look at me and say, well, I think Mick's training right now. So we need to go another mile. Oh, wow. You know, that was just the mentality. He was going to, he was going to try and beat whatever Mick, whatever he had in his mind that Mick was doing. He wanted to do it better. And um, so, yeah, I think it's just putting a, putting a team around the rider that gives him the best opportunity to shine, you know, technical staff. We had a great technical staff back then, you know, Yamaha is a good, very good partner. Um, and the mentality of the team, and I think, again, led by Kenny, we weren't going in to lose any race. You know, it was our job to go win, and that was the expectation. And a lot of those same things I see in, in the team that Jonathan has around him. You know, everybody pulled together. Um, everybody had the same goal. And, you know, there was only one thing to do on the weekends, and that was a good win a race. Yeah, you know that's that's a real that's a real valid point. And you know, again, um, Jonathan uh, Ray, the, the most successful superbike rider of all time, uh, narrowly missed out on the title again last year. Um, let's talk about that then, just for a second, since you brought it up. Obviously, going from a from a team manager's perspective to being a personal manager, um, you know, I managed a couple of riders myself, so you know, not to the level that, that you have. You know, you had a lot more experience uh, than me and a lot more success in that area, but. It's very different managing a rider and all of the things that go with that than it is with managing a team. But what's it what's it really like working with with Jonathan? I kind of look at it as the same way, though. You know, I, I look at it to try and, uh, you know, make sure that he has the best opportunity to do the best that he can. And, um, you know, whether that was in the, you know, the older days with the Tenkati Honda you know, progressing up to Kawasaki, you know, when his, when his contract years are up, I, you know, help him basically, you know, put all the pieces on the table, all the opportunities on the table, and then really let him decide what, you know, would be best for him. Um, and that's, um, you know, again, that's everything from the, from the bike to the, to the effort that's going to be behind, you know, uh, the performance on the racetrack to, you know, um, just giving him the best opportunity to win. So, so I, I don't look at that side of it uh, any different than I did, you know, when I managed the team, you know, you try and do the same thing, put all the pieces together to give the opportunity to the rider. And, uh, you know, I work with Jonathan's team in the, in the same way, but like I said before, his team is, is at a pretty high level. So there's really, I have nothing to add anymore. I can't, you know, it's, it reminds me of the team Roberts days, the people that he has around him. And their goal is all the same. And uh, Jonathan does remind me of Wayne in a lot of ways. I know how hard he works, how driven he is, and how motivated he is. And and for me as a manager, it, I, I just appreciate to have you know to be working with a rider that, that has that mentality. Yeah, no, for sure. And obviously, I, I know Jonathan on a, on a personal level as well. And I mean, uh, you know, for sure, he he will be disappointed that he didn't win the championship last year, as anybody would. As you said, the mentality is to win, but. I know we've only had one preseason test, but I mean, he dominated that final test of the season, didn't he, in Jerez? I mean, there was there was no, he was not going to go into the winter being number two on the timesheets. I mean, he he literally laid his marker down. And I mean, it's what you would expect, isn't it? I know you're going to say yes anyway because you're his manager and you're his friend, but anybody that follows motorcycle racing, anybody that's seen Jonathan's work ethic, you know, he went through that time of maybe being on the bike that wasn't maybe the best bike and, and maybe being with a team that could have done things differently. 
But when he got onto the Kawasaki, he grabbed that opportunity with with both hands and and he's ran with it. And I mean, and you, you, nobody can take away what he's achieved. I mean, he's going to be hard to beat in 2022. And I say that as someone that needs to remain neutral. But, you know, if Toprak's looking over his shoulder, his biggest rival is green, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. Well, I think I think no matter how successful Jonathan's been, you know, every year, he still learns from the previous year. And I think he's he's learned a lot from what happened, you know, last year. There were a few mistakes made. Um, I do think that they're that the, the overall performance of the Kawasaki is likely to improve. And Jonathan's not giving up. You know, he's digging in deep and uh, he's going to go after it for sure. So that's that's what's cool for me. I don't get to attend every race, you know, especially during these COVID years. I really, the last race I went to was Phillip Island. Um, I guess that was 2020 now, you know, looking back on it, the last time yeah. they ran there in February. So, but I do, you know, here in California, you got to get up like at three in the morning or whatever to watch the, you know, race one and then five the rip for race two or whatever. But do you still I'm, get I'm up, up and do that? Do you set your alarm? Do you actually get up and watch? I get up every, every race and watch them and, uh, you know, one, because I just want to see how it goes. But two, I'm a fan as well. You know, all this racing, you know, Moto America, you've seen, you know, me and my three partners, Wayne, Richard, Terry, we, you know, during the racing, we're watching the races because right. that's what we enjoy. You know, we're we're all appreciative that we had the opportunity to put on the, the events. But at the end of the day, we like to watch good racing. So, so yeah, I get up early in the morning and watch, you know, I, I kind of been given a Super Bowl, uh uh, qualifying a miss lately because that's a little bit early, but uh, but I do watch all the races, so it's that's that's it's, to be that's fun. to be applauded. Yeah. No, that's to be applauded. I like that. I like that. <laughs> I've got to ask you myself, and you know, you don't have to answer this. There was a lot of speculation a few years ago. Um, I think when the first or the second iteration of his Kawasaki contract came up, that that Jonathan had a chance to maybe move to Ducati. Um, there was also uh, speculation about that he might go to MotoGP. You know, we, we saw him debut and, and have a wild card, which he, he did great on when he when he was riding yeah. for the Repsol bike. How close was he to go to go into MotoGP? And you know, I don't want to get bombarded by people on Twitter saying he would have been on the podium or he would, he's not going to be in the top ten. I'm not interested in that because I personally think he would have been on the podium. Is my honest opinion. I think if he'd have give, been given the opportunity, I think he would have would have had a great career in MotoGP. Um, but how close was he, Chuck, to going to MotoGP on a competitive bike? Let, 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 I mean, that's clear. I mean, you know, riding around in 15th place on an uncompetitive bike, for sure I understand why he wouldn't want to go. But how, how close really was he with a competitive bike? Well, I think that's the key. We were, we were never able to get that right, that right level of, of bike together for him to go and have a decent shot at it, you know. You know, I think we were hoping that his his results when he did those two wild cards, I mean, he got in the top 10 both races. If, if you put a guy from World Superbike into that position now and he went out and jumped in and got seventh and eighth or whatever the results were, that'd be pretty heroic, you know, and Jonathan was able to do that. And at that time, he was jumping back and forth with tire brands and, you know, testing and racing in between. But, um, you know, we would have hoped that that would have led to you know, a satellite Honda deal or, or something like that. But, um, you know, following on in the years that, that they changed to the 800s and, you know, he had a chance at one time to, to run an 800. But again, the level of competitiveness of the first, you know, Honda 800s and first couple of years was not, you know, really not warranted for what his, his ability was, you know, because he kind of had one chance to do it. And, um, 
I just want to say the opportunity wasn't there, you know, again, when we, when we lay all the pieces out and you look at what, you know, what he had there for, for MotoGP and what he could do here for World Superbike and have the opportunity to win, winning's a lot more fun than run, running around in 15th place trying to earn your way. For sure, for sure. It's funny, we talked on the podcast last year, uh, I can't remember who the guest was now, but we, we were talking about Keenan Safoglu and uh, the, the comment came up that, you know, well, well Keenan was no good on Moto2. And it's like, hang on, Keenan was on the podium in Moto2. He was a very good rider, but Keenan yeah. liked winning and Keenan wanted to race and win. And he could yeah. do that very successfully in Supersport. So, you know, by his own admission, you know, he was never going to be a world superbike champion, but he could be a multiple Supersport champion. And look at the record books now. I mean, it's probably going to be 10 years before anybody gets any, and that's if somebody wins everything, you know? So, you know, going back to your point, Absolutely. Why, why would you want to ride around in the I mean, Okay, you can say, I would love to ride around at the back of MotoGP because you'd be a Grand Prix rider. It'd be fantastic. But no one's going to remember the guy that finished 17th for 10, 10 races in a row, are they? Somebody will remember. Well, I think at that time, you know, there, there were examples of guys, you know, making the best out of it. Cal Crutchlow, you know, he, right. you know, he took an opportunity and did it, but we didn't really have that same type of opportunity. You know, there wasn't a satellite Yamaha bike to, you know, to jump on or a satellite Honda, you know, effort for Jonathan to really jump on. It was always kind of the, you know, the B team and the, the equipment at that time was not, you know, not up to, not up to par, not up to be competitive. But, you know, now you look at, you know, those same teams and the equipment that's available now, you know, it's a different story, you know, right. you know, you would have never thought of a problem at the Ducati team to be a front runner back, you know, when we were looking for a place for Jonathan, but now you could, jump on that bike and be a legitimate top three guy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one rider that did take an opportunity when it was given is Danilo Petrucci. So uh, you can see where I'm going with this now. Uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to make you squirm a little bit about Moto America, but uh, it's now out there. Danilo Petrucci um, is coming to Moto America. Um, again, the team hasn't been announced. I've got my own feeling of where he's going to be. And, and I think most people listening will have an idea of where he's going to be. That aside, Looking at what Danilo Petrucci has done in his early days in the Superstock Championship, he, he took that opportunity with the IOTA bike where everybody laughed at him, like, what are you doing? He's gone on to be a factory Ducati rider. He's won Grand Prix for Ducati. He's just won a stage in the Dakar Rally, which is phenomenal. To me, now, that's one of the most impressive things. Oh, like it's, you know, because unbelievable. You know, Andrew, Andrew Short, the American, you know, motocross racers over there doing that. He hasn't won a stage, I don't think. Um, but for for Danello to after some testing and you know, go jump on and do this incredible race to win a stage is unbelievable to be it's, it's incredible it's incredible and and obviously he's now coming to, to moto america we know he's going to be in uh, in the series which i'm super excited about i've got a lot of time for danilo he's a really cool guy for, from your perspective from from the championships perspective um given your role within moto america you must be so proud you must be so happy now uh, in terms of you know i think back to sort of 2015 2016 and it was tony elias wasn't it the, the first sort of European, if you like, that made a, a full-time bit of coming over. Yeah. Look at some of the names now that have come across and, and raced in, in Moto America and look what it's done for the series. You know, you've got Zitler, Lorenzo Zanetti, Loris Baz, um, you know, that, that we could go on and on in different different categories as well, couldn't we? Uh, Claudio Corti back in the day, it wasn't yeah, in Superbike, sure. but it was in, in Superstock, you know, many, many riders coming into the series. Having somebody like Danilo continuing that kind of, I don't want to say legacy, but continuing that evolution. And that can only be good for Moto America, can't it really? 
No, for sure. Like like you said, Michael, nothing's been formally announced by the team or anybody yet, to be honest. I think he mentioned that there was a possibility on a on a website and, and if he's over here then yeah, he's welcome with open arms, certainly. And and it will be uh you know, it'll be fun to to see what he could do. You know, Loris coming in last year, I think there were a lot of high hopes. Uh that team, you know, was new with that bike. Um they got more and more competitive as the year went, but I think Loris, you know, going back to world superbike races at the end of the year and getting, you know, put the thing on the podium shows, I think, the level of competition here in Moto America is not at a low level. You know, Gagne, I think if he went over and there was a little bit of talk about him going over for the final race in Indonesia and it didn't really happen. But I think with his team, his bike and the way he was riding this year, he would have been riding the hunt, you know, for for top five, you know, as well. Yeah, I fully agree. Fully agree. You know, when you get him and Skoltz and, and um, you know, Cam Peterson is going to be a threat, I think, next year with, uh, you know, with his level of experience, you know, gaining another year. Um, got some great competition over here and not just in the superbike class, but all classes, you know. And I think I think the way that we have from Junior Cup to Twins to Super Sport to Stock Thousand to, you know, the Medallia Superbike Series, it's uh, it's providing a good stepping stone you know each year guys have the opportunity to move up and 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 every class is super competitive so you know now what we need to focus on is is getting um, riders involved at a younger age we have the moto mini cup series and um you know we got to get more more kids involved just to keep you know keep that ladder progressing and and um, uh, keep the competition high yeah, you know, I mean, again, I know you follow me on, on Twitter and, and we know each other quite well. I try to not get involved in these stupid, is the only way I can describe <laughs> it, discussions on, on social media when people start comparing different series and, and things like this, because it winds me up, you know, and, and people say, oh, you're only saying that because you work for Moto America. You're only saying that because you work with World Superbike. I'm like, no, I'm just looking at the facts. Look at the black and white. You right. can't compare a square with an apple. You know, it's like, come on, what are you doing? You know, it's it's, it's crazy. So I think you're absolutely right what you said, and I fully agree um, that the the results this year of, of Jake Gagne, yes, he was winning the races, but he wasn't just winning the races because everybody else was slow. There were six or seven events this year where he obliterated the lap record. I mean, he was flying, you know. And then, as you said, for, for Loris Baz to go back to, to, to Europe on a bike that he hadn't ridden before, um, you know, to, to, to with a team he hadn't raced on before, to put it on the podium, it just highlights and underlines the talent that, that is in in um is in moto america and i think we've seen that already as well going back to your point also with other classes you know cambobia he went to moto two arguably one of the toughest championships in the world we've now got sean dylan kelly who you know is moving on um and he's already shown some great speed in yeah. testing the talent yeah. is there in the states isn't it the talent is there and as you said it's just a case now of, of letting it be showcased and allowing these team managers and, and sponsors that are on the other side of the pond to start looking at America again. No, and, and, and Cameron Bovier is a great example. You know, when the, the year before he went to Moto2, he dominated our series here too in much the same way Gagne did. And well, a lot of people didn't, you know, we thought we were going to come into last year's championship with four or five guys that were going to be contending. And then Jake, you know, kind of put this, goal in his mind that he was going to go faster than Bobier did the year before what he did at most places. So it's uh good. I appreciate that mentality and that, that effort that they put forth and, and, you know, the other guy, Garrett Gerloff, you know, I know he, uh, 
you know, had a few incidences over last year, but certainly he's got the speed to do some, some good things in world Superbike. And, um, you know, between Gagne and Bobier and, you know, uh, Garrett, you know, they all kind of came up together. So it's, it's good to see, see the guys, you know, our, our goal in the beginning was to, to try and build a platform where, you know, Americans can get back over to Europe and we want to see American world championship world champions again, you know, like it was back in the days with Wayne and John and, and Eddie and so forth. But uh, yeah, our, our guys are doing good. It's taken us, you know, seven, eight years to, to, you know, to start to see this progression, but we got more and more kids, you know, striving to get over there and it's, it's, it's good. So it's, uh, it's good to see. And, Again, you know, I get up early for World Superbike races. I get up early now for Moto Two races to see how how Cameron's doing. But, it's uh, actually it's actually really funny, and I I can actually uh, corroborate that uh, that we obviously with the time difference in Europe, uh, we get ready for the for the Sunday on on Moto America, and <laughs> everyone seems to be at the track, and and there's literally me, Sean Bias, Paul Carroll. There's a whole load of other journalists, and we're all sat there streaming the Moto GP at like. 5.45 in the morning and everyone's <laughs> exactly. like, what are you doing? Like, we're not live on TV until like 9.30. It's like, yeah, MotoGP's on, don't talk to us. And we're all sitting there yeah. like completely exhausted, <laughs> but it's it's true, it's true. But uh, yeah. but it, it does make a difference though, doesn't it? When you've actually got Americans that you can cheer for. Same with me, we're looking at British riders and things. It is, it, it is a nice thing, um, a nice no, thing. No, we have Joe Roberts in there too. You know, Absolutely. Don't forget, he was our very first uh, Moto America Superstock 600 champion, I think. And, uh, you know, he's in there as well. So having three Americans in the Moto2 class is certainly something that we aspired for when we started this. But, you know, uh, back in 2015, have three Americans in Moto2, you know, knocking on MotoGP hopefully in a year or so. Um, it's, it's cool. It's good to see. Yeah, very well, It is absolutely great to see. Um, I'm unconscious of time. And obviously, I know I, I keep saying this on every episode. I do get paid by the word. So I try to string it out as long as I can. So I get my money's <laughs> worth. But I could honestly talk to you for, for hours. There's so many things that I want to talk about. But I've got to very, very quickly talk to you about King of the Baggers, because I'll be the first one to admit, I wasn't sure when I first saw it in 2020. Obviously, I couldn't travel across to be with you uh, in Laguna when, when the race actually happened uh, because of the pandemic. I watched it. I scratched my head a little bit, wasn't really sure. Um, it's not my kind of motorcycle looking at it. However, I'm the first one also to admit that when I saw these bikes in the flesh last year and I watched the races, this is genius, is the only way that I think I can describe it because it is a different style of racing, um, completely different style of motorcycle. But what I think the unique thing that you guys have done is you're bringing in a completely new audience to watch road racing. I mean, Daytona, for example, is back under the jurisdiction of, of Moto America this year. Yeah. I'm not saying the Daytona 200 is not a popular race. It had obviously Brandon Parsh winning the race last year. The King of the Baggers double header at Daytona could be the most popular race of the weekend, um, given by the amount well, of fans I'm, that I'm have super, been I'm Daytona. actually super excited for Daytona because, you know, with the new super sport rule, world super sport rules, we're adapting those. So you get the next gen bikes. Uh, we know that there's some factories taking it very serious again, which is uh, pretty cool uh, to see. But to have Ducatis and Triumphs lining up against our Yamahas and Kawasaki's and so forth, I think... Uh, you know, there's a lot more European interest. You know, we've had a lot of inquiries about from British riders in particular to, you know, about coming over and participating. So I think. Uh, and I think some big names as well, right? Some, I mean, we, don't, we won't mention anything yet because nothing's been announced, but there are some big names potentially yeah, yeah, going to be lining yeah, up. Certainly. Yeah, definitely. So if it all pans out, I mean, it's going to be a 
pretty exciting race on its own. And like I said, not to, you know, I was there at last year's and it was a photo finish. It's, it's always a great race, but I, I think, you know, again, the level of competition is going to go up a bit and it's uh, going to make it fun to watch, but you know, we have our twins race competing there as well and having twins cup riders up on the big banks is going to be awesome. And, and uh, Roland Sand Super Hooligans is another race that we introduced last year. And it's kind of, you know, my wife watched it and she kept using this word raw. You know, that's raw racing. I mean, it's basically right. FTR 1200 with no fairings and guys just racing them. You know, it's naked. It was naked cool. Super bikes, I, will have, I, will way, you know? I got to uh, I got to commentate on that with uh, with Roger Hayden. And it was it was brilliant. I loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah. And then you got the King of the Baggers, you know, Mission Foods has stepped in to, to sponsor that, title sponsor that. And and one of the interesting thing is, uh, you know, after final qualifying, we're going to we're going to have like a type of dash dash for cash is going to be called the Mission Challenge. So it's uh, going to be a 10 minute race for five thousand dollars going to the winner. Um, and then plus the two, you know, the two official races. Um, there's a lot more interest in the in the King of the Baggers this year, you know. Um, I got some wind of some of the entries that are coming in and it's, yeah, it's like you said, when we first, you know, had the class in Laguna a couple of years ago was we didn't know what to expect either, Michael, to be honest, you know, let's give this a try, but it has caught on. And I think it's when you watch what Tyler O'Hare and Kyle Wyman and, and the guys participating are doing on these 600 pound motorcycles, it is pretty impressive, you know, because it sort of looks wrong, you know, you, you shouldn't have, uh, you know, Harley Davidson or Indian with saddlebags, you know, backing it into corners that shouldn't really be happening, but, uh, and it's unique. It's the only place you're really going to see it on this level. And, uh, you, you know, I mean, we all are a fan of Superbike and MotoGP racing, but there's only one place that's racing King, you know, baggers. And, uh, it, it's actually a very exciting show. They sound great. Um, and this year is going to be, uh, you know, stepped up again on a different level for competition. It's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, it's going to be great to see them on the banks of Daytona as well. Sparks oh, yeah. off the saddlebags uh, out of the final quarter. It is going to be uh, is going to be good. And again, yeah. I, for anyone that hasn't hasn't seen this, go on go online. Uh, and I'm sure most of the motorcycle followers will remember that um, infamous wheelie from Max Biaggi at um, the Czech Republic where he almost looped it. Uh, just Google Michael Barnes wheelies a bagger uh, on YouTube and watch uh, watch what happens because. I mean, he's either the luckiest man on the planet or he's got incredible <laughs> throttle control, but uh, it was... Well, you can uh, even do better than that if you go, if you Google Frankie Garcia, uh, uh, you know, he was doing a practice start at Laguna the very first year and it just... Oh, wait, sorry, it wasn't Michael Barnes, it's my mistake. Yes, it was, it was Frankie Garcia, my mistake. Yeah, you're right, sorry. He actually looped it and it was, uh, oof, that was, that was sketchy. <laughs> sketchy yeah, it's crazy, sure. it is It is crazy. Um, final thing, Chuck, before we let you go, because obviously I'm just conscious of the time. One of the great things uh, in Moto America from the last couple of years is Moto America Live Plus. And we talk about the, the, the um, sort of unique things that are in MotoGP, BSB, World Superbike. Uh, Moto America Live Plus is the only online streaming event that not just brings you all of the practice sessions and the races, but it takes you into the paddock as well. It's uninterrupted for sort of eight or nine hours a day. Tell us what the fans can look forward to uh, in 2022 with regards to that, because obviously Live Plus is back as well, isn't it? Which is which is great for the series. Yeah, Live Plus is back. You know, it's gonna we're gonna feature the Daytona 200 as the first uh, you know first event of the year, and again we'll we'll have coverage for the three days. Uh, we're getting ready to announce our ticket packages this year, and those will be uh, this this week actually, and those will go on sale uh, pretty soon. But it's um, 
you know, really when we came up with Live Plus, we wanted to be able to take fans behind the scenes and, uh, you know, you along with Roger and, and uh, Robbie and, you know, all of the team do a great job, not, not only just interviewing riders, but interviewing fans and interviewing, getting a feel of what the events are like. And I think uh, that's gone a long way to help bring more people to the races, you know, because it is, uh, we have everything going on from stunt shows to motorcycle shows to, you know, we've had music in the past and so forth, but it is the very, you know, kids carnivals and it's a very entertaining weekend. And I think um, we do a good job of showing that live plus. And, you know, when we started it, we didn't know how many people would tune in and, you know, pay a subscription fee, which is pretty minimal at the end of the day, but, um, you know, watch it all day. And we, the majority of our subscribers turn it on Friday afternoon and it runs all day Friday and runs all day Saturday and runs all day yeah, Sunday. No, it's, so it's, it's phenomenal. I'm sure there's some yeah. unhappy wives and some households, you know, around the country, but it's, um, it, you know, it gives you that feeling that you're there when you're, when you can't be. So, uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Wayne, Wayne, uh, you know, certainly because of the, the pandemic, he's got to be careful about when he, when he travels and, you know, what the risk factor is and stuff like that. So he watched live plus a lot. And there were things he learned that, you know, that being at the track, you didn't, you didn't come across or didn't see, you know? So, uh, so no, it's a, uh, it's been great. It's um, it's grown every year and we try and incorporate different things every year to make it more exciting for the, for the viewers at home. Yeah, great. Well, as I say, I'm I'm super grateful uh, to to be part of it, and uh, it's, it's kind of it's, it's still surreal for me. You know, like I said at the beginning, Wayne Rainey is kind of my idol, and now he's kind of like my boss, which is quite quite weird to comprehend. But it is it is great. So um, again, for those that are listening, if you haven't watched Moto America Live Plus, you can go to the website motoamericaliveplus.com, and uh, as Chuck said, all of the information about how you can subscribe will be coming in the coming days, and of course. You can also check out the official website of Moto America, MotoAmerica.com. Uh, that's also just been revamped um, as well, hasn't it? Uh, I've, I've seen quite recently that I was talking to Jordan Miller and, and, and Paul Carruthers. There's a whole section now in terms of riders and all the past statistics and loads of video content. So it's uh, been re renewed, ready for, for the start of the season. So... Chuck, I know I said we were only talk for half an hour. It's been about 47 minutes, so um, I'm going to get a good payday. That's good for me, right? But uh, uh, you've uh, you've been subjected to me firing questions at you, but I really <laughs> appreciate you uh, coming on. And as I said, uh, I think um, you know what you guys are doing in, in Mid America is great, and, and I'm looking forward to to getting out to Daytona in, in a little over six weeks' time. It's my first time at Daytona, so I'm super excited. And um, yeah, I guess until then, stay safe, and, and I look forward to all of this news that's going to come out in, in the coming weeks. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on, Michael. It's uh, it's always good to catch up and look forward to seeing you at Daytona. Thank you very much. A big thanks as ever to our guests this week, to Chuck Axland from Moto America and to Corey Texter, the double flat track champion from the US uh, really keen to see how his young lad gets on as well can you believe that uh, more than a quarter of a million followers and he's only four years old uh, impressive stuff stay with us uh, for the next episode coming up uh, in the next week or two we've got another two great guests from the motorsport world Room. Your weekly motorsport fix podcast is produced by Michael Hill 
and is edited by Gareth Bouch of Room Media. The music is by The Rain Dogs and it's a production of Michael Hill Promotions.